Welcome to Archery Country Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another awesome episode of Archery Country Podcast. And we have been looking forward to this one for a long, long time. We are going to elaborate, as we talked about an earlier podcast, about something that's very dear to all of our hearts. And I think as a listener, this is going to be an eye-opening, ear-opening experience, especially for folks that we, we all have the dying passion to hunt other states than your home state. And uh, we have a gentleman from Cedar City, Utah. He is a, an upstanding individual. He's an outstanding outdoorsman along with his family. He's been in the business for a long, long time. And uh, I'm going to steal a, a quote from something that he had sent me. He is now in a position, a job that finally pairs his passion for hunting in the outdoors. And, it, and it's along with helping people. And it's one of the sweetest gigs on earth. And we got a chance to meet him in a couple seminars that we had at Archery Country at our locations. And just an all-around good dude from Cedar City, Utah, Mr. Jared Lyle is in the house. Jared, how are you doing, buddy? Good. Good morning. That's quite an intro there. I'm all pumped up for the day. <laughs> well, that's, that's our job. So the company that we're talking about and the company that you're CEO of is Hunting Fool, Hunting Fool, more or less. And uh, without me reading scripted, we also have Jake, the owner of Archery Country. We got Brandon, we got John in the house, and we're glad to have you. So Hunting Fool, as a whole, in a brief description, and it, we could your description could go on for hours, but what is it that Hunting Fool provides an individual like us? Yeah, that's kind of a loaded question. We've been around for 25 years, and during that time, you kind of acquire more and more responsibilities in helping your members go on on hunts. But I think what we try to do is distill it down into, you know, we try to have, help our members go on more hunts with better information. Um, that's really the, the uh, I guess, the, the overall theme of who we are and what we do and what we live to do and why we have the awesome job opportunity that we have. So we just really try to get you better information, whether it be what unit should you pick, what state should you be considering, should it be building points in certain states, um, you know, and then, you know, from weapon choices, all weapons, outfitters, we kind of try to do it all when it comes to helping you answer the question of where should I go and when should I go? And that's the biggest thing for me. Um, I, I have gotten blessed with the opportunity to live out West and, and gone on some great hunts and now living in, in the Midwest. There can be a little bit of a scare tactic for individuals who don't do it every year and, Hunting Fool is the calming hand, more or less, to aid in it. So let's break it down for you, and, and you guys join in with me. You decide that you want to go on an out west hunt, West River, or it doesn't have to be out west. It can be up north. You can go to Alaska. You can go to Hawaii. You can go down south. Anywhere that you can hunt, uh, Hunting Fool can aid you in a situation, and that's because it's, it's more than just you as far as a resource. There's individuals that are all over um, giving you information and helping you, but so you, you decide, okay, initially, rather it be a graduation gift or, or your wife finally gave you permission, you're going to go, you or buddies or family. Now it's a question of where, what game, you're going to spend the money on equipment, the preparation, but one of the greatest tools that is overlooked is hunting fool, in my mind, because one, you guys can do everything, or two, you can break it down and just aid in, you know, what units, what, uh, when you talk about popularity 
or proficiency success rates. Uh, you offer, there's a ton of stuff. And I know Jake, you've been, you've used them for a long time. Brandon, you're telling me a story, you know, yesterday about it and John as well. Um, it's a great, it's a great, great unit and it's a great tool, but how do we use that tool? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I'll, I'll, sorry, Jared, I'll just chime yeah, in no, here real ahead. quick, but I know for me, um, I probably in the last couple of years, I probably called them maybe a dozen times. Um, last year I was doing a Colorado mule deer hunt and I got to talk to Jared and I got to talk to Garth that works, works at their office there. Um, and the information that they gave me on helping me pick a unit and then with their members list, which is a list that you can get from them once you draw their tag, um, that, that'll give you, give you, uh, emails, phone numbers of other hunting fool members that have drawn that tag in the last so many years. And you can contact them. And most of those guys are really good with, you know, willing to share information on, you know, maybe spots they had success or spots they scouted seeing animals. And that's such a, an awesome tool because for me living in Minnesota, never been to Colorado before. Last year was my first time. I don't have time in the summer to drive out there and do a scouting trip. Right. And I actually did a fourth season rifle hunt, which is in mid-November. So even if I were to drive out there in the summer, that scouting's probably not going to pay off too right. much. Right. Things are changing. Yeah. So being able to talk to a half dozen guys that aren't even, you know, at the hunting fool office, which those guys helped me tremendously, but talking to actual people that were out in the field hunting that unit was huge. Yeah. And I think, you know, all of us use their resource a little different. And, and the reason to have Jared on this too, isn't, I mean, isn't to just push hunting fool, but also to give some resources that we use and some things that help us, you know, plan trips and, and get more hunting opportunity. I mean, the whole idea around this podcast is, you know, increase hunting opportunity. Right. Um, and, you know, all of us use hunting fool in some capacity to help us out with that. And I think it's a great resource for people, especially from the Midwest who are, you know, tougher to get out there or tougher to get that information. Um, plus to figure out where to apply, how to apply. I mean, that's, it's a confusing thing because we don't do that. You know, we, most of the time, the day before hunting season, you're buying your hunting license. You know, you're mm -hmm. not, there's, no preparation. You might put time into your food plots. You might put time into your tree stands. Right. You're talking at home here in Minnesota. Yeah, exactly. Yep. But, you know, tags aren't even something that we, you know, consider or think about long term. Right. And, and Jared, you can speak up on this. So your clientele, right, is it is it based on, is it more people like us or is it all around, you know, the nation that are using you? No, it's a great question, and honestly, it's uh, about as broad of a group of uh, demographics as you can find. We have, you know, hunters who have hunted all over the globe with, um, quite frankly, enormous hunting budgets, um, and then we have clients that literally say, I want to come out west and harvest an elk. I don't care if it's antlerless or deer or an antelope for the first time ever, um, and I would say, to answer your question more specifically, in recent years, more and more of our clients are growing from your guys', you know, I guess, neck of the woods. People who do just want to start exploring and going out. The world's getting smaller. I always say that, you know. Um, we have more technology than we've ever had. We have more opportunity to go to new places and not get lost, not be intimidated. We've got better gear, et cetera. And so we're finding more and more people are, are feeling that urge to explore. And, you know, and quite frankly, you know, not to 
not to uh, get off track here, but you know, the concrete jungle is a little bit, you know, exhausting. And when people want to get outside, they want to do it in a significant way. And a lot of times that involves hunts that require a fair amount of logistics just to make sure that you've got the right gear and the right tags and the right permits and licenses and all that kind of stuff. That's a perfect point. And, and so coming from a guy like myself and let's just say time is not on my side. And I'm, I'm proficient enough with a computer, but, uh, for example, I wanted to go, we've been out West in Wyoming and that's originally where I went to college and everything. And I wanted to go back there. I want to go on a muley hunt, right? For me nowadays to get online and research how to get a tag, how to buy, and we'll talk a little bit about preference points versus bonus points and your draw, um, it can be daunting. I mean, you can, you can know the area or you can have friends that live there, but just, just getting a tag is a process in its own and hunting fool can virtually eliminate any scare. Yeah. And I think too, like everybody has a different, um, I don't know if it's excitement or, you know, capacity that they want to put into that. For me, you know, I'm so busy day to day life and trying to just get everything done. I hate the research part. Um, to the point where I've given up opportunities because of the research is too daunting to put the time in and figure out where to do it, how to get the points. And especially now when you're talking a lot of these states, you have to buy small game tags to put in for these big game units. Um, mm-hmm. you, there's a lot of expense that can go with it. Um, so for me to be able to have a resource like Hunting Fool to kind of come up with a game plan with and have them help me through that gives me more opportunity and take something off my plate and I can do the part that I enjoy and kind of, you know, circumvent the part that I don't. And I know people, some people love the planning part and love the research part. And, you know, I'd I'd say Brandon uses it more towards that side where I don't, you know? Yeah. I like to do the, a lot of the research, um, kind of on my own and figure out what species, what state, you know, where I want to go. But then once I am able to draw that tag, um, or getting close enough to draw that license, that's where for me, those guys come into play with, with Jared's company and give them a call and, you know, what unit should I look at or, or even if I know what unit I want to go into, um, you know, getting that members list or even just having those guys help me with, you know, maybe this part of the unit's going to be better, you know, because of certain reasons. And, you know, those are reasons that I don't know because a lot of those spots I've never been to and I just don't have the time and resources to be able to go out there on scouting missions. So I think it can help for, yeah, so many different people, whether you want to go to outfitters or, or if you're like myself, where it's more pretty much everything's public land, do it yourself, but it doesn't have to be just by yourself. You know, you can, you can utilize some of those, uh, some of those benefits from the hunting pool to get so much ahead on your information. Um, that it's priceless. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and chime in here. Um, so I kind of want to elaborate a little bit on different things that like Jake's talking about here, how he uses the service versus how Brandon has used your service versus how like I've used your service. Um, there's, there's many different levels and, and information available that guys can, if you want to go through geek out on that information and check it all out. Or if you're a guy like Jake, who doesn't have as much time to do that, um, you guys can literally go through and help us out with like a five-year game plan, a 10-year game plan. When do we apply for this? can you go through and even like make those applications for us, Jared, I guess is something I would maybe want to just hear about. Well, I can, I can chime in towards Jared with that. All right. I don't even know 
when those applications are, if that tells you anything. Exactly. So like <laughs> it, it, in my world, I'm, I'm kind of a day-to-day guy, right? Like I fly by the seat of my pants quite a bit. And I can honestly say I have missed so many deadline, deadline applications by like, oh, I've got till tomorrow. I'll do it then. Oh, it actually ended at midnight last night. I've missed it again this year. Shoot. Um, go ahead and, and touch on that, Jake, would you? Yeah. I mean, so like, you know, I use, I've known Jared for a long time <clears throat> back when he was, in in the archery industry before he took uh, the position with Hunting Fool and was good friends with Jared. Um, But I always thought Hunting Fool was something for high-budget guys only. If you weren't going on a sheep hunt, weren't going on a moose hunt, like, it wasn't for you. Um, The more I got to learn about it, the more I realized that it was kind of all over the place. Um, For myself, you know, I want to have good opportunity hunts, um, you know, most of the stuff I'm looking for, I'm not looking for an outfitted hunt. I'm looking for public land hunts, but I'm looking for help trying to pick out those units, pick out those tags, pick out those states. Uh, you know, so I can have that conversation with Jared and the guys at Hunting Fool and say, all right, I want to pull a decent elk tag every year in, in some state, you know, where that has limited opportunity. Um, I don't, I'm not looking for 20 year draws. I'm looking for three to six year draws and try to find that. Um, and you know, they've made it completely not stressful for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I've signed a power attorney, gave them a credit card. They take care of all that stuff. Um, you know, and I don't know what, what your percentage of that is, Jared, um, you know, that, that do that. But you know, for me, that's such a weight off my shoulders that I can worry about the other day to day things going on. I can also, you know, it costs some money to do that. It's not crazy. But I look at it too, like, you know, if I put in for Colorado for two extra years and I don't know, what is a small game license now? 80 bucks, 90 bucks. Is that right, Jared? Sorry, guys. Yeah, it's about $90 now. Yeah. So if I apply for a few years more than I need to, to get into a sufficient unit for what I need to do, um, you know, that gives me another opportunity to hunt and pays for someone to help me do that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, plus have more success during that time. Right on. So, Jared, I'm going to ask you this, and and I this is by no means are we talking a sales pitch, but we have some customers and we have some listeners that are not going to be on the advanced scale. I think we've been touching on advanced guys that do it. You guys, more or less, if if you put it in retrospect, you can be considered a sports agent or an agent, correct? So, at any level, if a guy wanted to become a member of Hunt and Fool, they get in contact with you. You can walk them through step-by-step step the process. They can utilize just your information, or they can just use you as an agent, correct? Yeah, I think I mean, I mean, think it's a really good time. Let me break down a couple of services real quick. Um, and again, I won't sound like a sales pitch, or at least I don't mean it to sound like a sales pitch, because I'm going to start with our free stuff, right? So um, actually, before I jump into that, I will say one other thing that Jake uh, didn't touch on that is a, a good advantage with our services as well jake's schedule is super crucial he can only hunt like in october like the first little bit of october or whatever else so he can also and any of our clients can do this say hey i have this window to hunt and it's our job to go find hunts that match that window so not only are we matching you know your trophy expectations and the length of time you're willing to draw and your budget and all that well we're even able to say all right, well, then you don't want these. You, we can't. Eat. It's not even worth you applying in this state because you can't hunt during those months anyway. Or if you're going to retire some point in time down the road, then you may want to build a long-term strategy here, and here's why. But 
with that said, let me jump back over. So first of all, I would encourage anybody who's interested in hunting out West to download our free app off of Google play or the app store. So it's a free app. It'll send you notes. You can subscribe to whatever push notifications you want. Uh, we don't spam you or anything else on there. We're just going to remind you friendly. Hey, this draw period is open. Hey, this one's only got a week left. Hey, today's the last day to apply other hunt worthy news for the adventure bound, you know, hunter, somebody who wants to hunt out West. So it's a great way to entry level, get into the mix and start understanding the, um, the amount of opportunity available in the state. Second, we have a, we also have a free podcast called the built to hunt podcast. It's available on a ton of platforms. That's a free way too, that we share a lot of the information that's important and crucial to people getting out West. The next most expensive, this was where the cost starts coming in, um, is a digital membership. We have a 3d mapping platform that has waypoint management and, hunt unit and filter system where you can put in, I want to hunt a 300 inch bull with archery and all of the units that we think in our expertise meet that criteria will be re returned on this 3d mapping platform. So you get that, you get full access to our e-magazine, 1500 pages of content a year to help you plan and go on great hunts. And you get access to our proprietary draw odds, which are the most accurate draw odds on planet earth we pay for full data sets from these states that allow us to look at every applicant at every choice level and then run thousands of simulations to create true draws so i think that's right now i think we've got a special for like 30 bucks a year you get all of that right and then for 100 bucks a year you basically add the printed copy of the magazine and the conversation that we started out with access to our hunt advisor so i've got nine of us that you can just pick up the phone and call and, you know, like I said, you can ask any question from, hey, I want to know where I can go kill a cow elk uh, with my daughter or son or family or by myself, um, all the way up to I'm looking for a 380 plus bull and I need to know what units to apply it, you know, or I want to book the best outfitter. Um, <clears throat> and then what we were just touching on with like Jake, what we do with him and a lot of our clients, about 15% of our clients use us as a concierge license application service. And basically we do all of your applications on your behalf. We manage your portfolio. Once a year, we reach out to you with uh, the previous year selection to confirm that, Hey, do you want this or not? Typically most of those clients call in at least once and update all their choices, tell us what they have on schedule, what they can and can't do. And then we manage that portfolio throughout the year for them and apply. We do that in 20 different states that have draw systems from Maine and New Hampshire for moose all the way to Alaska for, you know, all species. So, um, yeah, there's a whole range of services that we supply. The membership itself, if you want to pay to be a member, it's, you have the digital only option or the what we call the all access option. So for 30 to $100 a year, you can have access to my team of 25 people that are here to help you go on more hunts. That is to me phenomenal. Um, and, and I, I, I very, very much appreciate you saying that. And like we say, it's not a sales pitch, but you need to know that people, you know, if they, if they listen to this podcast and obviously there's other podcasts like your own and that the first thing that comes to mind, like Jake had pointed out is this is a rich man's game. It's not, right. I mean, you spend a no. hundred dollars on, and that buys you cheap arrows, right, you know? Right. So a hundred dollars now just opened up everything. 
or like you say, 30 bucks or the free app, you know, to get started. And I encourage people to do that. Get the app. I did. And I have no plans of going out west, you know, this year. But <clears throat> I get notifications and it's it's interesting to me to me to and that's free. And then the thirty dollars and then you go to a hundred dollars. But it's it's such a cheap tool, if if I can say that quote unquote tool. But it is in, in my mind. Right. Well, the big thing is we don't want barriers to entry for people to come adventure on, you know, on adventure-based hunts, period. And we would be one if we got our price all out of whack. At the end of the day, we're, our goal is to inspire people to go and to get people encouraged and excited and empowered to like get off the couch or get out of your 40-acre piece that you're hunting because we know in your heart of hearts you do want to grab a bow and head out into an, a mountain range and hear an elk bugle and those kind of things. So. We really, honestly, there's not a person in this office that doesn't feel that way, that doesn't look at our membership and try to inspire them. You know, in fact, I'll be honest, we have some members who we call them, you know, point collectors, people who the points are more important than the experience. In a way, you kind of get attached to them like a little balance sheet item. And we're constantly trying to tell them, don't do that. When those points get match the expectations of the hunt that you want in states that have points, you should cash them in and go. You know, the, the points aren't creating memories for you, but the hunts will. Very good point. Very good point. Jared, uh, if you don't mind, I think you briefly mentioned it there when you were talking about stuff, but um, I know all of us run Onyx Maps. Um, could you just touch base a little bit on your, I, th- I think it's fairly new for you guys, that mapping system that you just came out with, and I believe that even has land ownership on it, and um, it's a 3D mapping system. Could you just kind of explain a little bit um, better than what I could, how that works. Yeah, for sure. No, um, we, you know, right now, honestly, Onyx is still hands down uh, the leader in this space. I have no, unabashedly, I would say that. And if you're going to come out West, you should have an Onyx account uh, with it at a minimum, the state that you're going to hunt on it. Um, because, you know, they have the offline capability that we don't have right now to access our map. You need Internet service of some kind, whether that be cellular or whether that be wired in some way, shape or form. You do have to have Internet access, but Onyx doesn't provide a 3D scouting experience. So you are correct, Brandon. We have all the government public land ownership layers. We have all the wildfire layers, which are very important for looking for feed. We've got four different topographical layers. We've got hunt filtering that puts our hunt and pool proprietary research into a map platform that you can filter and return results off of. Um, you can save waypoints. You can save maps, which is really huge. If you're much of an e-scouter, one of the big challenges I've always had is you start up Google Earth or you start up on X or anything else and you're either zoomed all the way into your current location or you're zoomed all the way out looking at the globe and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to go try to look at Fort Peck, Montana reservoir because I want to hunt the Missouri breaks with my bow and you're zooming and zooming and scrolling and you finally get all zoomed back in. So we created a, a saved map. that's basically like a saved e-scouting platform that will zoom you back in. It memorizes what you were looking at and the layers you had on when you saved that particular map. So then you can say, okay, well, I'm going to go back to Fort Peck and you click it and everything turns on and zooms you in. So there's a lot of really cool features. It's got a lot of room for improvement. Um, we're working on it literally every single day. We're pouring a ton of resources into it. Our goal is to, you know, have it be the best e-scouting platform on planet earth, but we also want it to complement Onyx. We want to be able to export waypoints out of our map and import them into your Onyx account, etc. We're not trying to be a land ownership offline mapping platform. We're just trying to help people scout better 
uh, digitally because uh, I don't know which one of you mentioned it. Or, well, I think you mentioned it, Brandon. Yeah. You know, it's not really viable for you to jump in your truck and drive out to Colorado, but right. it's not impossible to sit on your couch with your family for an hour in an evening here or there and actually mark some waypoints and identify some benches, some springs, other things that could be important to your hunt. Yeah, and I think uh, coming from this area, we don't really give the priority to scouting on, on maps. And I can tell you a little story on this. So I was probably, I don't know, maybe 22 years old. And a customer came in and said that he used to guide bear hunts in western Montana. So I'm like, all right. And I got in my truck, spring bear hunt. I'm going to go to western Montana. Never looked at a map. Had some really crappy directions from him. Drove up a road, snowed in. And I walked around for 10 days. Saw one bear, wore holes in my boots, didn't have a successful hunt. So I met Jared, or knew Jared, and we were talking about this, and he told me about it. And he's like, well, anybody who'd come out bear hunting by themselves, you can come out with me sometime. So next year, I come out with Jared, and I'm watching Jared look at Google Earth, finding spots, and I'm thinking, man, I wasted a lot of time just looking at nothing. Right. You know, and, and I don't think any of us use those tools as well as those guys out there because we're used to having a small track of land to hunt, and that's where we're confined. Not an endless amount of public ground in your unit where you can have a lot of different target points. And if you're using those maps and using things ahead of time, you have, you know, spotting, you know, spots. You have, you know, different spots where you can go look to find game instead of just wearing your boots out and killing yourself before you ever get in a position to actually get in a hunt. Yeah, no, excellent point. Um, I, I don't think I could possibly overemphasize. And again, keep in mind, and I love the fact that I literally am talking to the, the broadest spectrum of hunting pool members in Jake and Brandon. Um, you know, again, coming back to that, Jake is, Hey, I don't have enough time. I'm, I'm paying you to, to make the most of my opportunity. I want to trust you on what to put in for and everything else. I don't want to do a ton of research. And we have Brandon, who you are an excellent researcher, Brandon. You asked a lot of very poignant, well-thought-out questions. I can tell you spent a lot of time on it. And you're kind of just verifying, hey, am I going down the right path? Also, more often than not, that's what I'm hearing from you. It's like, hey, just verify that. Make me feel good and warm and fuzzy that I'm making the right choice. And we do both, right? And so, but if you are that researcher, which most people have to be to a certain extent because of budgetary reasons, you know, again, we want to be sensitive to that. We're not all about just people who can afford to come out and buy a landowner tag and pay an outfitter. We're, I mean, we're about those guys too. But if you are on a budget and you want to come out and do the most economical elk hunt you can, then you're going to need to spend a ton of time on the digital scouting platforms to make the most of your hunt or have somebody in your party who does. Yeah. And I don't even think it's, it's, you know, Everybody has their budget and everything else. But I think, I think you know, like I look at it, so the $30 or the $100 for somebody that just wants to be part of it. And that's why I'm, I'm not taking this as like a hard sale for hunting. Well, I think this is for our customer base. This is such an added value. You spend mm-hmm. two days driving your truck around the mountains, you're going to spend more than $100 in oh, fuel. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> and, and have a worse experience. Right. You know, right. this is, this is going to help you get prepared. And, you know, some, you know, somebody to talk to that, has done a lot of that, especially if you're new into this. Um, they're going to help you, you know, with, I mean, you guys even do gear lists and stuff to help people out, don't you, Jared? 
Oh yeah, there's no question off limits, man. Um, we get every question on planet Earth from what spotter should I or should I buy an angled uh, eyepiece spotter, straight eyepiece, all the way to what boots, backpacks, you name it. I mean, it's it again, it's a it's a full service. You know, we do, man. I I don't know, probably twenty thousand calls a year that we field um, all in, and that counts our outfitters, that accounts our members who are looking for consultations that counts just members who are calling in and touching bases with our license application team and other things like that. But I mean, we specialize in helping people go hunting and we love it. So there's no question off limits and comfort is an important piece. I mean, that's one thing I will touch on, you know, that it's easy to come out here and get whipped in the mountains. It really is. I've, you know, I've been doing this my entire life and there's still hunts where I'm like, mm, I wasn't really prepared for the magnitude of what I just took on. And uh, th- what will make you more likely to stick around, and I always say from a bow hunting point of view, what's your biggest asset time? If you, The more time you can spend in elk, I'll use elk as an example, in elk habitat, the more likely that, that magical moment is going to occur when all the, all the wind is right and the bull comes in and you make the shot and you're packing meat. And it's easy to lose time if you don't have the right gear. So we pride ourselves on making sure our, our clients have that too. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, Jared, let's say, uh, I'm going to go back to the budget thing here. Let's say a guy has a thousand dollar budget per year to, to do for like applications. What are, what are two or three States that in your opinion, everybody should be applying for, even if it's a long shot or if it's something that you apply for these with a plan to do it every, you know, five years, three years, six years, and then you have a fallback plan of something that you can go hunt every year, like a, like a Colorado over the counter tag. Could you, uh, could you touch on that? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question, by the way. And and what I will say is I'm going to answer it in a roundabout way and, and try to be as quick as I can about it. But I typically suggest that if you can figure out a way to spend, you know, at least $500 a year on your hunt budget, you open up quite a few opportunities over time to make Western big game hunting happen. So if you can set aside $500, which, you know, what is that? Uh, $50? Well, yeah, less than $50 a month. Um, if you can set aside that kind of budget, you can actually create a pretty good opportunity. Now at $1,000 a year, there's a ton of states that you can't apply for. And, you know, at a minimum, you know, to try to answer your question concisely, Wyoming is a state that I always recommend that you're building deer, elk, and antelope points in, primarily because there's so much opportunity. You can hunt antelope in Wyoming pretty much every single year if you want to. Um, you can hunt mule deer very frequently, you know, two to three-year waits. Uh, same for elk right now, the, the general tag in my Wyoming is a, you know, a two year wait or so. Wyoming has a staggered price system where you, you pay more for the same tag. And so depending on which one you go in regular price or special price, even though it's the same tag, they're just charging you a premium to have a, a separate quota, if you will, for the same exact hunt. Um, then your draw change a little bit, but bottom line is every couple of years you can hunt Wyoming and you can build points only during the fall preference point period. Um, so it's, roughly $50 for elk, $40 for deer, and $30 for antelope. And so, I mean, for $120 investment, you're building an opportunity to go hunt Wyoming. You, literally, you could rotate through those and hunt Wyoming every single year if you wanted to make that your pet project. Colorado is another one. That's um, more expensive than it used to be now because they do have that $90 small game license. But for $110, 
you can build deer and elk points in Wyoming every year. And again, you can hunt, I, I'm sorry, I said Wyoming, Colorado, you can hunt Colorado all the time. Um, you know, you can, depending on how long, I always say don't build more than four or five points in Colorado for deer or elk at this point in time, just because, um, Colorado has this band of great hunts that don't take that many years to draw. And then all of a sudden it's exponential increase to get the, the very toughest tags are high 20 years to draw those tags. Don't get in that trap, you know, build the build points on the low end. Then the other states that cost you a lot more up front because you got to buy a non-resident full hunting license and apply like say Nevada, Arizona, um, Utah to a lesser extent because the license is cheaper, but those states, then I typically ask you the question, Hey, are, is mule deer or elk more important to you? Because if mule deer is more important, I'm probably going to say Nevada is a better choice than Arizona. If you have to choose between one and they're both going to cost you 220 bucks a year out of pocket to apply for a bunch of species in those states. So, uh, but if it's elk, I would say Arizona because Nevada only gives like 40 non-resident archery elk tags in the entire state, whereas Arizona gives tons. So, um, yeah, it's, it's more, it's really hard to answer that without having that individual consultation with what are your goals, what size of bulls do you want to chase, how frequently do you want to chase them, that kind of thing. But for a thousand bucks to get back to that, you can have a very wide ranging strategy. What I'd rather do is tell you the state not to apply it. Um, don't apply in Washington state because Washington requires you to buy a full non-resident elk tag and, or deer tag or, I, or both if you're applying for both species plus uh, a hunt application fee and then they basically let you hunt a cow or a spike elk for $600. So it costs you like 600 bucks a year to build points in Washington hunting kind of crummier units if you are going to hunt in any bull, it's not worth it, right? Oregon is a preference point state for the most part. 75% of the elk tags and deer tags go to people with the most points. And then it takes decades to draw the better tags. And they only issue 5% of their tags for deer and elk to non-residents. So the bottom line is uh, they don't treat you very good. So what we can really do is say don't spend money in these locations. Do spend money in these. Montana is another one where, you know, and I'm not trying to overwhelm the podcast with information, uh, but Montana is a great state to illustrate in that with three to four points, you have really good draw odds of drawing some really good archery only elk tags in Montana. And it only costs you $25 a year to build an elk point if you build points in the points only period, which is in the fall, it's July through September. But if you try to build points by going through the draw in Montana, you're gonna, they're going to hit your card for a thousand bucks. And if you don't draw that tag you want, let's say you're trying to apply for the Missouri breaks, which is a kind of a renowned archery elk hunt in Montana, one of the Missouri breaks units and you don't draw it. Montana says, okay, well we will refund 80% of your thousand dollars. Uh, or you can keep the tag and hunt all of our general season units which is still a good hunt. But the point is, is it costs you $200 to build a point that way. If you want to get the, the, you know, the refund back, or you can build three or four points at 25 bucks a year and then go into the draw with a high level of confidence. That you're actually going to pull the tag you want. Yeah, that's so those, 
yeah, those are the nuances that we try to walk you through and make sure that you're taking care of your budget and not just leaving money on the table. And we have, we still have tons of members who are applying in Montana through the draw for limited entry tags without enough points to really impact their chances in a good way. And it's costing them 200 bucks a year. And we have that conversation every, every time we get a chance, we're like, Hey, this isn't the best way to do this anymore. Cause Montana started that points only period just a few years back, uh, which was a really nice addition. So sorry, I got a little long winded. No. And, <laughs> and that's awesome because uh, I'm, I'll throw myself into the pool. Like I had no idea about any of that. And I'm going to ask you this, can you break down or elaborate, or maybe there is no difference between a preference. You keep saying points, a preference point versus a bonus point. Yeah, no, it's actually a super important distinction on several levels, and, and I'll try to break them down really clearly. First of all, a preference point gives you preference in the drawing, meaning that if you don't have enough points for this particular hunt that you've applied for, they, you literally have no chance of drawing it. Like in a true preference drawing like Colorado deer, if you don't have enough points, you might as well just have your application wadded up and thrown in the trash. There's a misconception still. I mean, they, they made an exception to that a few years back, but still the best high demand tags, the ones that everybody wants, the, the exception only applies to residents. Non-residents never draw those quality tags if they don't have enough points. So in a preference drawing, the beauty of it is, is that you can quote unquote, see yourself in the drawing. I can say, all right, that tag takes four points to draw. And so when I get four points, assuming that the, it hasn't crept, it hasn't moved, I'm guaranteed that tag and I can plan a hunt. I can book an outfitter, I, you know, on and on and on. Whereas in a bonus drawing, it's random, meaning that I get extra chances. So as my points build, I get extra names in the hat. So to speak, extra chances to draw that lowest random number that makes me draw the tag before they're all gone. Um, but it, it's just random still. So it helps. And it certainly is important in some states. Again, Montana is a bonus point state, what I was just referring to. And um, so that three to four points I was mentioning for elk that get you really close to some excellent draws. Um, that's, that's an important factor because uh, the other thing is here is that states like Montana and Nevada, they square your bonus points. And again, these are bonus point states, not preference point states. But so if I have, you know, 10 bonus points, my name, I've got a hundred extra chances in there with those bonus points because they're squaring those, right? So it's an exponential uh, reward for long-term participation in the draw. And again, I hope I'm not overwhelming people with information but back back to the nucleus of your question a preference point means that you have preference in the draw and you can sort of see yourself in the draw and, and know roughly when you're guaranteed a tag bonus points give you extra chances and then there's true random draws with no point systems like idaho like alaska like new mexico where there's no point systems you just Every single year you go in and you're, you're against the guy that's been trying one year and you've been trying for 20. Thank you. That was easy. And I, and, and like, how would I have known that, you know, without talking to Jared on the podcast, we just give you some free information more or less. But, uh, Jared, let's, let's take ourselves away from hunting fool for just a second. We want to get to know you. Our listeners want to get to know you. Um, I've gotten an opportunity through Jake to watch some of your hunts and uh, phenomenal job, by the way. But what if you had one 
of the most memorable hunts out there, what would it be? Past or future? Past. Tell us a story. Uh, um, well, Jake knows that I love hunting bears with a bow, spot, and stock. I don't know what it is about them, but they're just an interesting animal. They live to be older than pretty much any animal that any of us hunt in North America. You know, they can live up in that 30-year range. Um, and they, they're kind of personality driven. Like there's, they're just an interesting animal. Plus they can eat you, um, <laughs> right at the end of the day. So there's an additional element to getting within bow range. So last year I was afforded the opportunity to hunt a grizzly bear with my bow. And honestly, it, that's like uh, one of those pinnacle hunts that I, I thought would never happen because of cost barriers and other things like that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, a you're in Alaska, which, Anybody who hasn't been to, whether you're fishing or recreating or backpacking or hunting, you should try to figure out how to get to Alaska. It's an incredible experience for adventuresome hunters. B, you know, we were in a high adventure location, even by Alaska standards. You know, it's it's like out to Kosabu on the Bering Sea, and then you're on a Cessna 206 that flies you for an hour and a half, and you land on a gravel bar on the Noatak River, and then you jump in a Super Cub and fly another half hour and land on top of a little rocky knob that no airplane should ever land on. And then we, you know, you're just, there's not a sound in the world. I think we're 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle. Like, yeah, so that, that hunt uh, stands out and probably will for the rest of my life. And I mean, and I happened to kill a, a giant bear with my bow as well, which was a icing on the cake. Pinnacle. Yeah, and if uh, Jared's excited about an area and it's remote, I mean, he's half grizzly bear himself. So I think that's the other part of it. <laughs> Hey, Jared, how, uh, real quick, how far away was your bear when you shot him? I still remember I clicked the rangefinder three times. It was 41.5 yards. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, that's uh, and actually, that's pretty I don't close mean to, to de- a big bear. Yeah, I don't mean to derail the conversation in too much detail, but basically, you know, we had hunted our, our butts off. We Basically, I worked a deal with an outfitter where I kind of had to be Camp Jack and Packer and Skinner and, and all of that kind of jazz in order to earn an opportunity at the end of the hunt to bat clean up, so to speak, if there was any days left and then I could hunt with my bow. And so we killed two client bears in camp that week first, two giant grizzlies, uh, big old boars. Uh, and, and just to get some context around this for the listeners, you know, you know, I'm all about the North American model of conservation. Um, and I, I think all too often, you know, it gets a black eye into you know, today's society, there's a lot of sounding off without good sound information. And in this particular unit, it's unit 23, it used to be one of the best moose meccas in Alaska. And there's almost no moose left. There's no non-resident moose hunting at all out anymore because the bears have just erupted. It's got a good salmon run. It's one of the few places you can hunt grizzlies on salmon because normally that's kind of the distinction. Brown bears eat salmon, grizzly bears eat berries, right? But these grizzly bears are eating salmon and they just erupted. And so non-residents can kill two bears a year they're talking about bumping that quota to five grizzly bears a year for residents. Wow. Just to put it in perspective for how overpopulated this bear area is. So anyway, we'd killed two big bears and then we hunted super hard the last day and a half. I had two and a half days to hunt. So one and a half days was gone. I had a day left to hunt basically. And the day, the day before we'd done like 13 miles in chest waders um, in the tundra and crossing swamps and rivers and, you know, climbing mountains to glass and 
like we're pretty tuckered. We got back, I think we left camp at, I don't know, 5 a.m. Because it's light all the time. We left camp at like 5 a.m. that morning and rolled back into bed at 1.30 a.m. And I set the alarm for 4.30. And my guide and friend, Austin Atkinson, he's like, yeah, there's no way you're waking up. And I said, this is my last day. You will not find me in bed. So uh, true to my word, I got up. We were just, it was just breaking gray light. So barely, barely light. Um, and we, I fortunately had gotten everything I needed together and we were just kind of filling water bottles and getting ready to take off for the day. And he said, there's a giant bear in the river behind you. And, you know, we're camped in a little tent on the river with a bear fence up and I turn around and there's a big boar with his nose in the wind heading straight up the river on the far side of us a couple hundred yards away. And so I just looked at Austin, I grabbed my rangefinder, threw it around my neck, grabbed my bow, jumped the bear fence and took off at a trot. And I knew Austin would be right with me. And, you know, we're kind of trying to head this bear off. And by that time, he actually crossed one of the channels of the river toward us and came out on an island, found a salmon and laid down and started eating it. And I popped out and ranged him at like 75 yards and dropped down into a swamp. Um, and we were kind of slowly wading through the swamp to not make any noise in the water. And I was trying to decide I had 15 more yards of gravel and it would have been like a 60 yard shot, which is, you know, I, I don't want to shoot far with a grizzly bear. So I'm like, ah, trying to decide. I took one more step and Austin says, don't move. He whispered, you know, and I just pivoted my head to the left a little bit. And there was this other giant bear at 41 yards that I shot eating a salmon right next to us. So I had two just big grizzly bears, you know, within 60, well, about 70 yards and, and 40 yards. So it was an unreal scenario. That's pretty epic. <clears throat> yeah, it was cool. And then, you know, thankfully made a really good shot on the bear and, and uh, complete pass through the bear ran we ranged it around 37 yards from where he was standing to where he was dead. So, um, can't ask for better than that. What, what did the other bear do after you shot the one that was 41? Well, he came over to check us out. So, um, we, we started backing up. He jumped in the river and started wading toward us and he got to about 40 yards himself and we were backing up slowly to not provoke a charge. And, uh, then, I heard my guy, he was behind me. He turned to start kind of running in the water. And that's when I knew I was like, well, if he's nervous about it, I better start running too. So we <laughs> kind of both started running. And then when we stirred the, you know, the noise up and everything started moving that fast, the bear, you know, decided we, he, we weren't dinner or whatever. And then he turned around, he actually ended up running off and spooking off. So, uh, but yeah, he, he actually came over to check us out. So Jared on a hunt like that, are you, are you going to run like a similar, uh, arrow setup is what you would for elk. Um, can I add, like, what were you shooting for that trip if, as far as like arrow and, and weight and broadhead and that kind of stuff? Yeah, no, identical to my elk setup. Um, I, you know, I've killed a lot of bears with a bow, not grizzly bears, obviously that was my first grizzly bear, but you know, they're a fairly soft hided animal. And as long as you don't poke them in the shoulder they're you know, you rarely won't get a pass through. Um, they're actually a lot less robust in their, rib skeletal area than an elk is so i felt like it was more than adequate i was running uh rip 350 with 60 grains of extra weight up front and a 125 qad exodus broadhead um so all in i was i think i was about 450 446 grains something like that uh full arrow weight so you're not you're not running a an 800 grain log down range <laughs> Now, I know I can stir the pot by having an opinion in this category. It seems like anymore, it's real easy to stir the pot. I want you has. to. I want you to stir the pot. <laughs> because I'm on, yeah. I'm on the same page you are, and I'm, I'm 
unbelievably overwhelmed that you just said the arrow weight that you did because I was thinking, wow, he's going to come in at 680 grains and then we have to go about EFOC and all that. Well, if, you know, I can just chime in here real quick. We get like in the shops, we get a ton of questions on, you know, what arrow should we use for whether it's bear or especially elk. Yeah. You know, a lot of guys from around here going out there maybe for their first time, or maybe they have been out there before, but you know, looking for that elk arrow and, um, Jared, you're probably as much of an accomplished elk hunter as anybody. Um, yeah, just maybe talk about why you shoot what you do. And again, I know it's, it's personal preference, whether you want to go light or heavier in between, but, um, maybe just explain to the listeners, like what your thoughts anyways, and your opinion is and why you shoot what you do. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I've, I've shot a lot of elk with a bow. I've been fortunate again, growing up out West and having a lot of, a lot of jobs that afforded me time. And again, time's a super important element. So I'm not trying to beat on my chest at the success, but I've shot a lot of elk with my bow. And those, you know, I've been in the low 400, like right around 400 grains up through about 600 grains uh, arrow weight over time, you know, playing around with different setups. And man, I kind of shot them with everything. Feathers, two blades, four blades, you name it, you know. Um, And I've really settled in in that you know, 400 to 450 grain weight for a lot of different reasons. And again, I'm a kind of an average draw length. I shoot, you know, on average, I usually shoot a 70 pound bow and I'm a, you know, 29 inch draw. So I'm kind of right in the middle, maybe just slightly on the upper end. I think 28 and a half is true middle, if I recall from yep. bow manufacturer. But anyway, bottom line is kind of average in there. The biggest reason I like to shoot an arrow that's a little bit lighter, quote unquote, because those aren't light arrows by any means but they're you know definitely not in this kind of heavy craze that i've seen a lot of uh interest in recently uh the number one reason is trajectory um you know when you're hunting on the ground running and gunning and you're you know i hunt alone a lot and you know probably the reason i haven't killed as many big bulls as a true giant elk slayer like dan evans or randy ulmer or some of these other guys is because i do like to call elk in and so when you're trying to call an elk in running the calls moving after you made your last call to make the interception so he doesn't have you pinpointed all this stuff's going on it's pretty easy to miss your yardage by three four yards or five yards right and man you get punished big time for having a really heavy arrow um i've shot out the bottom i've shot out the top too many times with arrows that just didn't sort of make the most of my trajectory so i like the pin gap i get out of that i like the speed i get out of that side sort of setup and equally important, if not more, you know, I'll be honest, I've shot through the shoulder blade on elk before, um, actually through the blade, through the lungs, killed the elk, but I've never shot through the shoulder bone. So, you know, the blade, of course, comes up at the top of that really big bone that angles forward in that little golden triangle. And that big bone, you're not going to get through it with an 800 grain arrow and an 80 pound bow or a 300 grain arrow and a 50 pound bow. It's just not going through there. So if you screw up and hit them in the shoulder, it's not going to change it anyway, in my opinion. And I'll probably get some criticism over that, but that, I, I have some, unfortunately, very strong no, personal I, experience yeah, in that I, category. Yeah, I I agree with you. I mean, last year, the elk I shot's a, like, a key example of that. Um, that bull came in, and he came in quick. He was running into the water hole, and I was at full draw already just trying to guess and I was five yards off, and I shoot, you know, about 420 grain setup last year, I think I was at. Um, mm-hmm. And I hit him high, double lunged him, and he ran 50 yards and, and went down. 
Um, but if I would have been shooting a 500 or 600 grain setup, it would have been it would have been all over. Right, I would because hit of your him. drop. Yeah, I would have hit him high. He would have been running around with an arrow in his back. So, you know, yep. I'm kind of under that same same philosophy as Jared on that. And and I think it, controversy or not, you know, people they they're gonna argue if you like white socks or black socks. But it's the thing <laughs> is, is in my mind, when people ask and my personal setups, the arrow has to get there for you yep. to kill any animal. You know, if you're taking a seventy yard shot on an antelope that's drinking out of a water hole, which is skittish, you know, if you throw an 800 grain arrow down there and in a split second you know or elk obviously a bigger chest cavity on that and you do call them in at 30 yards and then they get wind of you and they jump out to 52 you you for those of you that have elk hunted you know you're not going to have an opportunity to quick range them and then set back down and do your dial and single pin or multi-pin the arrow has to get there to kill the animal well and with elk hunting it's usually it's multiple animals coming in and mm-hmm. there's cows around. The bull is, you know, not standing still. He's trying to herd <laughs> his cows or go around or come into your call. And especially as a Midwest guy, we're used to a deer takes two steps. It's like a yard. Big deal. It doesn't change how we shoot. If that elk takes two or three steps, you're like yeah. six yards. And you're. it's a totally different change from when you ranged them through your rangefinder, put it down, and it's, you know, the game has changed. Yeah, and I guess, so for me, for Jake and uh, Jared, I guess this is a question for both you guys on your, your arrows, you're shooting a little lighter, you know, than maybe what most guys would, as far as penetration, have you guys had any issues or are you, are you blowing through pretty much everything you're shooting? Yeah. Last two elk I've shot with that setup with a, with a, you know, saw or a fixed head. I picked it up on the other side. Yeah. So it's going right in and out. Yeah. Yeah. I think as long as you don't hit, you know, shoulder, um, either on the entrance or exit, you're going to blow through pretty much anything you shoot. I mean, I will say like in a steep quartering away shot or like a slight quartering two shot, um, if you go, if you punch through the grass bag on a, a bull elk that has fed all night or whatever else, it's like shooting into a bag target, all that condensed grass. So, you know, that can change whether or not you get an exit or not. I, you know, I have had angled shots that haven't that taken a poop out of the arrow a little bit, but no, uh, honestly, you're going to blow right through almost everything. I mean, on that grizzly bear, I blew through the bear, found my arrow probably 15 yards out the other side of the bear, underwater in a current, buried in the gravel struck hard enough that that I had to pull the arrow out from the gravel underwater. I mean, it you know, it just didn't even slow down. Right. You know, and it was a, a massive grizzly bear. He ended up, we actually just got him scored and officially and he's like number 20 in the world with a bow so he's just you know to put it in perspective he's a giant bear too and no problem and i think you know we talk about trip preparation from time to time and we're actually we're probably going to grab you another another podcast uh especially for guys that are going to go out west for trip preparation uh that's in our future but not only you know getting the right pack and the boots and your bow and your arrow set up but you you have to shoot you have to practice you know, preparation, success equals preparation um, with a little bit of luck. But, it, you know, that's the thing is you're finding a spot um, and you're shooting, you know, holding at it. And I, I can about imagine what was going through your veins and your mind at 41 yards with a bear or two bears within 100 yards, you know. But <clears throat> you'd, you'd practiced all year long, your off season, and uh, you're very, very confident in your setup. And I think confidence is just as critical as a sharp broadhead, you know. Right. Do you agree with that, Jared? 
Oh, hundred percent. You know, and, and honestly, I'm going to brag on the archery country guys a little bit. Um, because I mean, the whole point of like a, a pro shop is it's not just, Hey, I just buy my bows and arrows here or whatever else, but I actually get expert service and, and, and knowledge. And this, this particular group of guys, I happen to know that they know how to coach you mentally. Um, cause all the practice in the world at a standing target, but doesn't quite get you ready. I mean, I encourage you to do 3d shoots, put yourself in you know leagues, put yourself in environments where you're competitive and where you have stress and anxiety at full draw that you want to make this shot count really, really good. Um, that part of it, you cannot emphasize enough because being a good shot at paper doesn't equate into being a good shot at hair necessarily. But what does is shooting under stressful circumstances uh, where you really, really want it so, so bad. Cause that's what happens to us. I mean, we want this so bad that then we let the pressure kind of get in our heads and the, you guys, you know, I've talked to you at length, Brandon, Jake, you and I've hung out under the stars too many nights talking about this kind of stuff. You know, you guys are able to help people coach that into them. And that's a super important piece. It's not just hitting paper. That's a, it's a great point, And I appreciate the, uh, the compliment you guys, what, uh, anything else you want to touch on? I could talk stories with Jared forever and Jake and these guys. Um, I think, is, is there anything else that we... Well, maybe just real quick, like, you know, for Jared, what you're talking about there and Jake, um, what are some of the things that you guys do? You know, like Jared said, you, you can go out in the yard, practice and practice, but that doesn't really replicate that scenario where that animal's in front of you. I mean, for me, if if I'm shooting tournaments, I'm making better shots hunting. Yep. Like, that's, that's a huge thing for me. If I'm not shooting tournaments, like, I went through a stretch where I wasn't shooting as much, um the time that I feel a stressful situation is when the animal's there. If I'm shooting yep. multiple tournaments and getting myself in situations throughout that year where shots really count, I feel that stress and I feel, I already know what that is. So when I pull back on that bull, like last year when he's in, I've felt the stress. I know how to control it. I know kind of what makes things work in that situation. Um, that's probably the number one thing for me. Um, you know, number two is like physically getting in shape for a hunt, um, which, you know, as I've gotten older, I, I have to key in on more cause I'm stubborn. So I didn't like my, how stubborn I was a lot of times carried me through getting ready for hunts. Um, but that's starting to catch up. Yeah. And I think even if you can't, uh, if you can't always get to a tournament, like you said, where you're shooting under some stress, even if you got a few buddies yeah, in the backyard, in the backyard, make a little competition out yeah. of it, try to add some type of stress or pressure while you're practicing absolutely if it's and you know one of the i'm i'm an avid target archer i mean that's what i do and i hunt on the side and i love it but here's it like a little key you get your buddies out there like you're seeing they're watching over your shoulder or do this take your iphone or any phone and video you shooting a three arrow group at 50 yards you may never ever publish it you may never ever share it but put that stress on your shoulders of trying to make, you know, that's going to duplicate or add more to it. And again, it's, it's preparation. You have to not only utilize the tools from archery country or hunt and fool, but you, you take all this time. And I think time is more valuable than money. And then you put in some money and you get into a unit with a very, very low success rate as far as getting a tag, but a very, very high success rate of getting, you know, a 380 bull. Um, for those of you that don't know, that's, you know, equivalent to 170 inch whitetail around here. 
you, and then you mess it up because you flub a shot. It, what do you, you know, right. you, you get let down and then you're going to put the blame on other people when it's it all solely comes to you and your mind and the release, you know, of your equipment. Yeah. What I always say there is there, there's going to be a ton of variables on a hunt that you can't control, whether when, you know, wind switching, uh, hunting pressure, other people messing up your hunt, you name it, you should control all of them that you can. And one of them to Jake's point is your physical fitness. You know, did I do a good job of trying to stay, you know, lean enough and, and train hard enough to be physically fit? And another one is, did I do everything I could to be the best shot with my bow possible? So you should control the variables you can unequivocally. And, you know, back to your point, Brandon, here at Hunt and Fool, we have kind of a fun little competition. Every Monday morning, we have a, actually, it's one of the 365 targets because we like to be able to shoot out to long range. We can get out to 103 yards here. We start at 40. And basically, whoever drops out first has to buy all the fixings for a company lunch that we make once a week. And, you know, we do elk burgers and that kind of stuff. And that person has to wear the cone of shame, get in a vehicle, drive downtown, buy some chips and lettuce and pickles and whatever else. And it creates a tremendous amount of pressure because you're around your peer group. There is a little bit of money on the line. There's pride, all these other things. And it's a good time. And those sort of scenarios really do make those shots count. You think about it at full draw, whereas if you're just out by yourself, you don't. Right. I think that's a good point. As uh, we're getting close to wrapping up, uh, what are, what's the future hunts or what hunts are you going on in 2020, Jared? Well, I got real lucky and drew an Idaho moose tag for Shiris moose. Um, they're very hard to come by. It's a, it's a super coveted tag. So that'll be my number one personal emphasis hunt for myself. And then my son and I, I put my son in Nevada. Uh, with me on my, I think I had 17 or 18 deer points, and Nevada has has allowed hunters to do a cool party trick. Now, they're supposed to eliminate this next year, but again, these are the things that we know at Hunt and Fool, where you can put in together as a party, uh, draw the tag, they average your points, so both my son and I went in with eight points each, and again, I mentioned earlier, they square your points. The bottom line is we had an exponential advantage, drew him a good tag, I turned my tag back in, got all my points back, plus earned a point for this year, and basically bought my 22-year-old son an opportunity, kind of a graduation from college present, and we're going to go do a high country Nevada archery hunt August 10th. So uh, that, I'm super looking forward to that hunt, my moose hunt, and then I'll always fill in with an archery elk hunt or two um, somewhere in there. You know, I'm so glad that you brought that up. For example, my oldest boy is nine. Is there an area with Hunt and Fool, for example, you're buying your son a graduation gift or you got him to take – can I start, you know, how old do they have to be? Or is that, is that a great idea or a good idea or a terrible idea to start, you know, my boys on a preference point or, or purchasing so that they can have an earlier chance at some very uh, great hunts? Yeah, it varies from state to state. We actually have a lot of emphasis on youth. Every single one of our state sections that we write up, we talk about youth opportunities specifically. And I mean, <clears throat> the most extreme example is Montana. You can start building your youth uh, Montana bonus points as soon as they're old enough to get an ALS number, which is basically like six months. So you can start a six-month-old baby uh, building elk points, and by the time they're old enough to legally hunt, they're already 10, 12 points in and can probably draw a decent tag, right? So, yeah, there's definitely – and it's cheap because, again, those are those $25-a-year points. It's not like you're spending hundreds of dollars to do it. But uh, – 
you know, one thing, one word of caution there is you got to be careful about the state themselves. You know, some states never purge your bonus points or preference points. They hang on to them forever. Some states will purge after 10 years. Some states will only hold on to points for two years and then they purge. So, you know, if you raise your kids and they get busy with high school athletics and, you know, girlfriends or boyfriends and other things like that, sometimes they kind of get disinterested for a period through college, whatever, they usually come back to it. But, you know, you just want to kind of have a heads up look at what state should I be applying in? Because if they get out of the house and I don't want to keep, you know, building them points because they seem to have no interest and you don't want to do it in a state that all of a sudden two years go by and the state says, okay, all your points are gone. And again, we build charts around all that uh, tables that show that all the time. <laughs> I love it. And Jared, uh, where do we get a hold of you? Where do we go? Is it is huntful.com is a Facebook page. What uh, steers in that direction? Yeah, huntingfool.com. And again, you know, we were too poor to afford the G, so it's not hunting, it's huntingfool.com. Um, and then also 435-865-1020 is the office number. We've got uh, full-time, super helpful. I mean, this is how, and I'm going to brag on my team a little bit here. I walked back into the back office where our inbound team was the other day, and they're like, oh, I'm glad you got here. We're trying to understand how the Arizona bonus pass works in the draw. And I'm like, oh, I love these guys. You know, so I've got four super helpful ladies in the back there that are picking up the phones and they're actually trying to like help answer calls that, you know, on that kind of level. So um, anyway, yeah, give us a call, check out the website. Uh, and again, download some free resources. We'll help you out. Um, it's what we do. But, you know, as we're getting close to wrap up, I do want to just one more time, just try to inspire people to go. It's, it's not as scary as it seems. Um, the world is a smaller place than ever. Gear is phenomenal. Um, the mapping resources that you have available, the, you know, even to the point where you can get the, you know, the, the texting, de satellite texting devices that are available now. So if you have an emergency, like get out and go. Um, it's not that big of a deal. And I think almost everybody that does it for the first time realizes, oh, I made way bigger deal out of that than I thought it was. Um, one more key word, though, I will say specifically for your Midwest audience. I, we get the, I want to get one really bad conversation all the time, right? Especially around elk, archery elk. Nationally, the you know, I'm not going to get this statistic perfect uh, because there's so many variables involved in it. But let's say that the national average is probably somewhere around 12% harvest success for all, everybody that grabs a bow and elk hunts on an annual basis. Keep in mind, it's, you know, don't, if you make the success of your hunt strictly around coming home with an elk um, or worse yet with a big elk, you're probably not going to have near as much fun. And, I can't emphasize this enough that the more fun you're able to have on the hunt, the more effective of a hunter you're going to be. So don't, you know, and I think part of that is because in the Midwest, you guys pretty much get one every year. You know what I mean? Like if you've got a good place of property and you spend enough time in a tree stand, your wildlife has managed to basically harvest. You're trying to take the top off the coverage, so to speak. So you're not killing as many deer on the roads and whatever else. So most people are going to get one if they spend enough time. If you come out West, you're probably going to get your butt kicked more often than not, um, especially initially. So remember to keep it in perspective. That's what I would say. 
That's great advice. Absolutely. Um, if you guys want to put a face to the name uh, or to the to the voice that we're talking to, you guys can also check out, uh, I know you guys have some hunts on YouTube, um, some advisor videos. Uh, again, free resource for people to go check out. Um, is there any chance that you're going to have a camera with on the moose hunt this year, Jared? Yeah, probably a 90% chance on that one. The, the challenge there is I am a diehard bow hunter. It's an any weapon tag. And I'll eat the tag before I'll shoot it with a gun. And that's not a criticism. I love hunting with gun hunters. All, most of the guys here in the office hunt with guns more than bows. Like, it's not a judgment thing. It's just a passion thing for me. And in Idaho, it's a once-in-a-lifetime harvest. If I kill a antler an antlered moose in Idaho, I'm done. No more moose hunting for Jared for life in Idaho, other than I could draw a cow tag after that. So I'll eat the tag, which means that I've got like a three-month-long season, and I'll, uh, my cameraman's patience would wear out if I drag him along too long. So we'll try our best, but I'm going to be stubborn and stick with the bow and whatever else. But we're definitely excited about trying to capture that one on film. Awesome, awesome. And we're going to put all the links in the description of this podcast. You can just scroll down and uh, click on Hunting Fool or uh, any of the other links, and we'll put some others. Also, we encourage you guys to get a hold of our YouTube channel, Click subscribe and the little bell notification for up and coming going along that. We're going to have some podcasts that are actually videoed so you guys can put some faces with our voices along the lines. But thanks again for everybody, Jared. Uh, huge thank you to you calling in and, and hooking us up. And we're going to have you on some future podcasts. Appreciate that. Jake, John, Brandon, on behalf of Archery Country Podcast, my name is Wade. We will see you down the road. Thank you for listening to Archery Country Podcast. 